Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Today, we're skipping the partner meeting, and we're going back to our old format and doing an interview, one conversation with one expert. And I'm very excited. Uh, today is a little bit of a tangent from what we're typically talking about in the startup ecosystem. You know, we're all uh, jumping around topics with fundraising and operational stuff, and as of late, uh, bank runs and macro trends. Uh, today is about the back end of entrepreneurship. It's about what happens when an entrepreneur succeeds and makes a bunch of money. And we've got uh, someone who I think is incredibly thoughtful on this space on the show today, a gentleman named Taylor Adams, who's an entrepreneur investor himself, but he's also the fifth generation of a family that has been enterprising in his words. And what I think is really special is he is coaching families and he's a public speaker on this and he's created a paradigm for thinking about how to empower future generations after the wealth is created to not only self-actualize, but to do so through building and entrepreneurship. So it all comes full circle, kind of everything I care about. Uh, One, helping people find themselves wonderful. Two, empowering them to go and create and creating environments where that's done. Uh, But I love the idea that Taylor is on a mission to essentially take, uh, help a lot of America's wealthy and wealthy around the world um, really take action with the resources. So it's, it's very powerful stuff. I hope you enjoy. Taylor, thank you for being here. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Thanks, Mark. Excited to be here. Do you want to start by just doing a quick background, introducing yourself? Yeah, definitely. So um, I myself am a, a fifth generation family member in an enterprising family. So um, you know, there's there's a family business legacy that dates back to like the, the 1890s, um, and so I grew up in that context. And uh, we we have a family office. And that office currently serves somewhere around 175 different family members. So my experience and perspective on, on multi-generational wealth and multi-generational wealth preservation is informed just by lived experience and observing what actually happens um, across generations. And, uh, and I've always been pretty obsessed with like practical psychology, human evolution, uh, human progress. And I find that the multi-generational wealth kind of puzzle is the most fascinating multivariate nonlinear equation that you can po- possibly come up with. And I just love, I love solving puzzles. And I also think it's, 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 um, it's actually incredibly important um, in this age of abundance that we live in. I don't think humanity has had enough generational cycles to evolve to abundance. Um, and I see a lot of you, know, you mentioned there's not a lot of information out there of what to do. I think th- there is a, fa- a fair amount of information, but I think it's um, generally ill-informed and leads families down the wrong paths and actually perpetuates the very things that they're trying to prevent. So excited to, to get my ideas out there. Thank you. Yeah, no, this is very cool topic. Um, so, you know, I'm a big history nerd. I listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He has a quote or phrase he throws out. I'm going to butcher it. That the halls of history echo with the sound of clogs climbing up the stairs and silk slippers coming down. 
And I think the subtext there is, you know, the kind of, there's a, a hard work, p- poor, you know, a value set and skill set that tends to create wealth. And then wealth is making, makes people soft and they lose the wealth. Another phrase that kind of is parallel is where we'll hear people say, hey, it takes three generations to create wealth and three generations to lose it. So you're generation five. Can we start out with the problem? Where does a family having money cause problems? Where does this surprise people? Uh, and I think for a lot of people listening to this who are founder types, they're probably the, the generation creating wealth in most cases. And they probably don't know, you know if, if this pattern is a, a real pattern, they're probably also the people who set up the infrastructure that caused all these problems for future generations. So I think this context is super, super important for them to be hearing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think if you think about values and principles of wealth creation of that, that entrepreneur that's, that's you know, going up the stairs with, and clogging up, um, it's really about risk-taking and value creation and being of service to others. And it's done in a way where we're not operating from a fear of loss because the mindset is like, I've got nothing to lose. Let's just try this. And I think once abundance is created and you look back and you're like, holy crap, we've created something that's really significant. It's important. It's valuable. I think what sets in is a fear of loss. And the idea that, you know, that you, you mentioned the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves in three generations. Um, you know, I think every entrepreneur who creates wealth, um, you know, somebody, whether it's a wealth advisor or other <laughs> whispers in their ear, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, and they go, oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. I don't want some entitled grandchildren to destroy everything that I work so hard to create. And so what happens is, is that in subconsciously, the, the operating model for value creation flips and it goes from risk-taking and entrepreneurship to one of preservation. And the, the preservation frameworks are entirely different than the entrepreneurial frameworks. And when you, when you switch to a strategy of preservation, which by the way, doesn't really exist in nature, you're either growing or you're dying, um, stasis doesn't really work. What happens when you switch to a preservation mindset and you, you advocate for things like stewardship of the thing that was created uh, by previous generations, what it does is it de-emphasizes the importance of ongoing value creation. So like the idea is preserve what already exists, then what's secondary to that is like create new things that have value. And so future generations um, feel less, less compelled to create. And even though they have it, we generally have an innate drive to create. Um, and then what happens is, is I think families go from a culture to, of value creation to a culture of value consumption. Also, um, with future generations, when, when the environment that they grew up in is really significant and, um, and large, uh, it's, it's harder to figure out how they can make contributions that actually move the needle with respect to their, their environment. It's, it's part of the human condition that we all want our environment to reflect back that we exist 
and that our contributions have value. But when your environment's really abundant and complex, it's hard to reconcile how to actually make those contributions. You know, this is interesting. You know, like we started a multifamily office at Interplay because everywhere we went in the market, we just kept hearing people talk about wealth preservation, which I think is kind of a joke because it's free on Vanguard. Drop some money in the S&P or equivalent, like shouldn't cost anything. But the, the missing piece, which I, th this really speaks to me, is I think we're looking, this is my version of it, and, and I, I think it's probably uh, limited depth compared to what, the way you're thinking about this, is people just want a sense of meaning. They want to feel like they're creating and driving value. And what I love about the way you talk about generational transfer and planning is it's psychologically oriented towards giving people the ability to have a sense of meeting. So what, what should people be doing? Like you've got this, someone who's finding probably a lot of meaning in building, you hope. They build, they create wealth. How do they avoid falling into the pitfall of flipping into wealth preservation, flipping into defense? And it sounds like that's also connected to creating environments where their future generations feel handcuffed or unable to have impact? How do they flip that? Yeah, it's actually uh, pretty simple. Um, with, it, with a wealth preservation mindset, like the main subject of everything is the wealth. And it, it can, in a family, can very quickly eat up all the bandwidth. And the focus is on like the legacy and the wealth. Um, I advocate for an empowerment paradigm where we flip that and we make sure that the, the, the most important thing, the primary factor is the human capital, so the people. And we take an approach of, of believing in people and their innate, innate ability to, to create value for others. And then we, um, we look for ways that we can help them engineer peak moments in their life. So a peak moment is a moment where you've, you know, you've, you've made a contribution in some form and your environment is reflected back that you exist and that you have value. Um, and the beautiful thing about a peak moment is that it, it changes your perspective on what you think is possible and what you're capable of. Now, like think of peak moments in our country's history, like, you know, the, the very first flight or landing on the moon or Elon landing rockets backwards two at a time. It, it, it not only changes our perspective on what we're capable of as an individual, but then also as an organization and, and as well as a society. And so, you know, the, the, the preservation paradigm, the, the main, the number one goal is preserve the wealth. And then the default secondary goal is protect family members from the wealth. Because we've observed that, that wealth has the power to rob future generations of meaning and purpose entirely. In this, in this new empowerment paradigm, it's really first focus on the, the humans in an individual format, not in a group format, um, and empower them to, to find ways to make a contribution. So what that looks like is meet them where they're at with respect to their interests and then say, yes, and. I'll, I'll tell you a story of, of, of how my, uh, my father's empowered me. There's, there's so many different stories, but I remember one time um, I was 13 years old and our, our, 
our family was running a, a direct private equity practice and we were acquiring distressed manufacturing companies. And one of the companies we acquired was a, was a company that manufactured automotive um, aftermarket uh, parts. They manufactured superchargers and you put one on your car and it makes your car go really, really fast. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I remember one night at dinner, I told my dad, I, was, I said, we should advertise on the radio because if everybody knew that superchargers existed, then everyone would want to put one on their car. And if he was wearing the business hat, he would have said, Taylor, like, it's a good idea, but this is why it won't work. This is a niche market. It's not right for like mass market advertising. But that's not what he said. He said, okay, go put a radio commercial on there. I was like, what? Like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll drive you to the radio station and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pay for the commercial. And so that's what I did. Like he drove me to the radio station. I met with them, produced a radio commercial. And two weeks later, I'm on the school bus on my way to school. And I hear a radio commercial that I produce come over the airwaves. That's amazing. And the main takeaway there is that, that when you, when you say yes, and like really cool shit happens, but the important thing is, is work with future generations to make sure that the feedback loops are, are as short as humanly possible. You could think of it as like lean startup methodology and, and using kind of MVP frameworks. But um, what tends to happen um, in enterprising families is, is when the environment is really robust and significant, people, uh, future generations feel like whatever I do, it has to be big. So I can't start small. And so they tend to open up these really, really big feedback loops when they're experimenting with, with their purpose and their meaning. And they get like 10% of the way there. And, you know, they find out it's really hard and things don't really work out. And so then they just move on to opening up another big feedback loop. And then, then society can get the impression that, oh, they're just a dabbler and they're running around doing different things. So meet them where they're at with respect to their interests say yes and, and then figure out how to repurpose legacy resources and capabilities to, to empower future generations to create their own value creation machines. And what you really want to instill is a culture of value creation over value consumption. This, this language speaks to me. I think one thing I, I hear in this is that there's this role of management that generations, you know, have to kind of have like they have to have a management skill to train and manage the next generation and i'm sure your dad was a pretty damn good manager right to give you that type of opportunity so i'm hearing that i'm thinking okay uh there's a human component to that that the person maybe that g that first generation whoever that person is that entrepreneur listening to this who's gonna take their company public and they're gonna set up a system but they don't know if their grandkid's going to be a good manager for their great grandkid. So there's a whole interesting, I don't think we have time for it, but a whole interesting conversation. I'd love if you have a couple of bullets of how do you structurally set up an operation so that the emphasis can be on value creation with people that you may never meet, right? And I'm sure that's probably a different structural paradigm than what people are, most people are setting up with this wealth protection and, you know, hey, let's try to, you know, reduce the mind fuck we give to generations down the road. It's kind of this defensive versus offensive approach. How do they structurally put offense in? 
Yeah, I think the way you frame the question is 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 great. I think people generally, when they approach this kind of thing, they they ask themselves the question of how can I empower the next generation? And usually, it's not even the next generation. They're they're actually referring to specific people. Uh, how do I empower Billy or how do I empower Sally? And I think the much better approach is rather than than focus on on actual individuals focus on building a capability and the way you do that is you ask yourself the question of how do i um build capabilities today that can ensure that generations born even 100 years or 250 years from now will have the opportunity to self-actualize they will have the opportunity to become the best version of themselves possible right um and I think when you reframe the question that way, it, it, it changes how you think about it and changes how you build. Um, because the, the, when you're building just for individuals within the next generation, I equate that to kicking the legacy can down the road. And you're hoping that, all right, I hope the next generation kicks the legacy can one more time so that the, future, the next generation has the opportunity to do, to do it. There's just way too much risk in that because eventually one generation is going to look at the can and be like, Hey, what did that, what did that can ever do for me? Like, fuck that can. I'm not, I'm not kicking it. And then it's game <laughs> over. Right. Um, and, and what I've learned is that all it takes is there for, for there to be one generation that's void of an active value creator for that entrepreneurial spirit to completely leave the family. And it's, it's, it makes sense because regardless of like what our strategies are and like what we communicate to future generations, emulation is going to be what, what they actually use to shape their life. They're just going to do what the previous generation did. Um, and so looking at it from a capability standpoint empowers us to think about, all right, what kind of structural mechanisms uh, can we create? Like, for example, creating a, a, a dynasty trust or, or a trust that's its only purpose is to invest in the self-actualization of family members. That's a perpetual kind of structure where it's, you know, the, it's available to generations, you know, four and five and six. Taylor, thank you for being on today. I, I'm very grateful that you are out doing this. Um, I think it's not just going to help a lot of people psychologically, but um, there are a lot of people with means and resources and everyone's favorite word, privilege. Uh, and the methods and perspective you're sharing is activating them. And that's a, that's a good thing for everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mark. I love that conversation with Taylor. Thank you, everyone, for listening to that. Uh, I think what he's doing is super important activating a whole segment of the population with material resources and equally as importantly hopefully helping people set up constructs that will be in service of the mental health of their families so very powerful stuff i don't think uh, enough people can hear his words on this topic um, he's a frequent public speaker uh, that's where i actually heard him first time he was giving a talk uh, and i'm grateful to have befriended him uh, so you know, definitely check out Taylor and what he's doing. If it can be helpful to you and you want to get in touch, just reach out to us. Happy to make the intro. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, very grateful to have him on.